Hello and welcome to Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 31, Logan Lucky from 2017. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And this is a very exciting movie because this is the first movie released since we started recording this. We started doing this podcast a year ago? It was a long time ago. We started doing this a long time ago. Maybe not a year, but it's been a while. And so for this to be the first mid-podcast release, it's sort of entering phase two of phase one of (laughs) Cinemakers. I think he was still retired when we first started recording, if I'm not mistaken, but now he's unretired, and yeah, we're actually watching a new movie of his, which is great. Unretired and unsane. No, well, that's coming soon also. Like, that's the other thing. It's like the floodgates have reopened, and yeah, we're going to get a lot of stuff. This version of Cinemaker, Steven Soderbergh, this may never end. I think we've said a few times, and I'm starting to believe it. Yeah, it could be that even after he passes away someday, he'll keep making movies. I mean, there's just no no sign of, of anything stopping this guy. Yeah, he maybe has something filmed for when right. he passes away to be released. Was it Robert Rodriguez or Richard Linklater? Who did the movie that was put away for 100 years? Rodriguez. Yeah, with Malkovich. So, Mike, we have him on the list. I don't know if we're going to get to him for a while, but, like, if we're alive in 2116 or whatever, we're going to be like, hey, Cinemakers, Robert Rodriguez episode, because we'll, everybody else will be dead by that point, but, like, uh, you know, episode, like, probably for him, like, 85? Like, who knows how many movies he's going to make? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past Soderbergh to put something out posthumously. But I do want to say that this is a movie, once again, with Channing Tatum at the helm, so we will cover this eventually on Magic Mike's. There's also a movie with Riley Keough in it, so you know... <laughs> we know where you stand. When it has Soderbergh, Channing Tatum, and Riley Keough, it has my heart forever and ever. And introducing Daniel Craig, this new actor who I'm not quite familiar with, but has become an instant favorite of mine strictly due to this performance, which is incredible. You know, you joke, but... I have to bring up right now, not Daniel Craig, but we've talked a lot, I think on this podcast too, yeah, no, definitely on this podcast, about how I can't recognize people with new hair. Catherine Waterston, I was like, who's, I'm like, oh, okay, I know that, okay, I got that one. Sebastian Stan, nope, did uh-huh, not. Uh-huh. If he does not look like Bucky Barnes, I am never going to recognize him. So this movie really tried to mess with me in terms of hair. Daniel Craig has different hair than normal. Catherine Waterston with a really short haircut. I guess it's similar maybe to Alien Covenant. And then we have Sebastian Stan with like no hair compared to Bucky Barnes, Winter Soldier. I am so off base here with hair. <laughs> and Seth MacFarlane, I mean, did you? He does, he's got a wacky accent. You can't even really place him unless you really know kind of what he looks like. Yes. When I saw this for the first time in theaters, I was glad that I knew he was in it going in. Otherwise, I would have spent the entire time like, who is that? Like, why do I know him? But I, I luckily, when I saw this in theaters and then again today, like when he showed up the second time, like when I watched it today, I was like, oh, right. I forgot he was in this, but I remember that's him. But yeah, again, like just like a wacky, you know, like the main people, you know, the Logans, they all look like they normally do. But pretty much everybody else is just like, hey, we're going to like look completely different from normal. Yeah, it's true. Even the our main character, our Channing Tatum character, he, I, I don't know, he carries himself as though he can't move the way he does in, say, Magic Mike, right? Like, I, I don't know what kind of shape he's in necessarily, but he moves like a guy who has sort of been beat up by life and, you know, drinks maybe too much beer, and he's recognizable for sure. But even he is sort of, you know, carrying himself differently, I think. 
Yeah, I think that he's a great sort of physical presence in here. Like, you get so much about not just his character, but, like, I feel like a lot of people's character from just, like, their mannerisms or the way that they carry themselves. Like, Adam Driver in this movie is incredible. And he is, like, one of the most stoic performances I think I've seen yet. And I just, you get so much just from, like, body language and and things like that. And I love Channing in this. This is one of those roles where it's, like, not that he's unrecognizable or anything, but it's just one of those instances where I don't think it, it's not like a character it's more of a person now like to me like I really feel like he's embodying these roles and I feel like everybody in this movie does a really good job of sort of not just like transforming themselves but channeling these characters in a way like, if you can't tell like I really enjoyed it I've only seen this once before in theaters and this time around like I just had like the best time watching this movie so like I'm probably just going to be showering like everything with compliments but yeah I really just felt like everyone did a great job and I just want to say shout out to Katie Holmes like in the media and stuff she's been going through a lot so it's really nice to see that she's got like her acting chops together and everything like I felt like she was really strong in this Uh, I like how she sort of had both her husbands around her finger at times and stuff and yeah just uh, everybody's really strong here you know, speaking of that Katie Holmes part, it was originally apparently supposed to go to Katherine Heigl, but she got pregnant, so she dropped out. But Mike, this reunites Katie Holmes with Hilary Swank from The Gift. Shout out Keanu Club. So look at that. Look at that. But yeah, I like everybody in this movie. I mean, I don't know if you mentioned that Adam Driver's missing an arm, that Shannon Tatum has literally hobbled. I mean, that's what Seth MacFarlane makes fun of them. You know, like the two of you together basically make one normal person or one regular person or whatever. But they are physically marred, which sort of gives them, you know, the edge up in terms of our affections to begin with, as though we weren't already fully on their side. But I agree that, like, everybody's so good in this movie. I think there's the way that they do things. Like, it's so unspoken. But when Shannon Tatum gets into the fight at the bar, the way that Adam Driver quietly, like, plucks the top off the bottle, grabs the bottle, grabs the rag, walks outside. Like, they've done this before. And it's this wordless way of characterizing these guys that it's not the first time some drunk asshole made fun of Adam Driver. It's not the first time that Channing Tatum defended Adam Driver. And it's not the first time that Adam Driver has really, like, irreparably damaged the night for the guy, the offending guys. And that's all in just, like, a wordless scene that's, like, 12 seconds long. Like, it's just perfect in how simplistic and how character-driven it is. Yeah, you get the kind of team they are immediately. I mean, it just, it tells you everything you need to know about who they are and what they'll do for one another. The way he sort of just launched to one another's defense or aid or whatever in that scene. It's it's a moment that I remember seeing it the first time in the theater. There wasn't cheering, but you could feel the crowd going, oh, like raising a fist for these guys. They, They get us on their side right there. Yeah, and I remember the first time watching this, you know, I was kind of like, oh, like, they're really trying to set these guys up as kind of slow or dumb-witted or whatever. And, but then you find out Adam Driver did two tours in Iraq. That's sort of a part of the altercation at the bar was about the disrespect there. And, and it starts sort of bleeding into the more situation of their brothers, the medical insurance issue and just their poverty and just him being a vet and not having any respect and just being stuck and not advancing neither of them are really advancing in life all that much at this point but i was sort of blindsided i guess because i was like oh he must have lost his arm in like a tractor accident but no you find out like you lose it in iraq and so so things are not exactly what they seem in this movie and i think that's another big thing that's going to come to light later and i that's kind of like a setup i caught this time around 
you were saying that like you know they're they're not really going anywhere in life but they're trying to go somewhere in life because once again this is another movie from Soderbergh about the American dream about sort of that grind that hustle that trying to make a make money make a living just sort of support yourself I mean like it's all over this movie like maybe more in your face than any other movie ever that he's done at least because we have Channing as this real blue collar worker with his daughter and then he goes to drop the daughter off of Katie Holmes and her new guy and like it's this mansion of a house and every car he drives is like you know a hundred thousand dollars or more like they're all like these top of line sports cars and this upgrade that Katie Holmes did just by going from one guy to another that's sort of her American dream but Channing is just trying to get by and the way that they're going to all sort of make their splash in this world is to knock off the, the motor speedway you know from one race and then it gets you know quote shit happens right and then they have to sort of fall on their contingency plan and then go to a bigger race and knock that off it's all once again about trying to just get by in life like the first thing that we see that happens in this movie aside from Channing with his daughter is that Channing loses his job because he's got the pre-existing condition he's been hobbling around the work site the construction site and he loses his job and it's like okay now we need to make money like now I need to get by in some other way and so that's when he shouts cauliflower and the ball gets rolling yeah this is another example of as we've talked a lot about as you say Soderbergh sort of dealing with people who are sort of under the gears of the capitalist system like these are sort of honorable people who cannot get ahead and their sort of only way to do it is to go after the system right like this movie's full of the little guys getting back at the big guys and i think that there's something really really satisfying about that that's something big that i thought about watching this you know like right from the beginning i mean i i've been editing the episodes so like i've been listening to recent ones and you know just from Aaron Brockovich to the Oceans movies to Girlfriend Experience to Bubble like he's always just trying to find different ways to explore how people survive and make money and and stay afloat and it's always different and interesting no matter what like I feel like that's a great topic to explore because any class system has mm-hmm. like a really interesting take on that and they're all going to be sort of different because every individual is different so I love how these guys or at least Channing rallies these troops together and sort of gets his own little like heist going and yeah and just sort of defies expectations like you know these are a bunch of quote-unquote hillbillies okay and and they're gonna fool everybody you know and I think it kind of comes down to you know you shouldn't really judge people by the way they look necessarily or sound or you know that whole thing because a guy like Joe Bang right Right, (laughs) like the ultimate hick is like a genius (laughs) he's doing equations on the side of the wall with chalk like in the middle of the heist and stuff so yeah I'm really enjoying the way he's exploring themes that he's used to in his first movie back yeah it's totally true and and not only do the other characters get sort of taken in by them, right? Not only do they fool the people around them, but they fool us too in a way that I thought after the Oceans movies, I wasn't going to be able to be fooled again, right? Like this is another example of we are not let in to the full heist just as our main characters are not letting the supporting characters in on how the whole heist is going to work out. And I think that works really well. What I think is kind of remarkable about the structure of this movie, at least in comparison to the Oceans movies, is that 
there's so much time left in this movie after they complete the heist. Yes, yes. Like, there's, like, 25 or 30 minutes. Like, you know, the movie flies by because it's a lot of fun, and, you know, it looks great, and everybody's, you know, having a good time. It's all people you like. And I was just like, oh, I, I guess I'm going to finish sooner than I thought. And I looked. I was like, no. I still have half an hour left in this movie. And I was like, what is this about? And that's when they bring in Hillary Swank, and then they eventually show you what it was. Like, it's sort of like at the end of Ocean's 12 when George Clooney and Julia Roberts were at the table with the fox, and they're like, oh, this is how we actually did it. And, like, they do it in, like, two minutes. That's at the very end of the movie. Here, it's like, okay. Like, it just, it's a very different structure, which I think kind of downplays, in a way, the importance of the heist. Like, it's the big moment, but the movie's about more than that. It's about the people more than the heist. Like, Ocean's Eleven is about sort of the act of revenge against Harry Benedict. Uh-huh. And it's like, the big thing there is about them stealing the money. Here, yeah, they're stealing the money, but it's also about, like, we've been saying, like, the American dream and about, like, getting by and, like, doing what you can and, like, your family. Like, it's, you know, it's a Fast and the Furious movie in that way. Like, it's all about family, which yeah. they also reference Fast and the Furious in those movies. You have to know that I was going nuts in this movie yeah. when you have so many of my buttons being pressed. But I think that, I mean, I don't know, I can't I can't think of another reason other than, like, just the structure of it, but, like, by having the climax so early means that it's not actually the climax, maybe? I felt the same way watching it, and I, I was a bit relieved that the structure was different, and, and the movie wasn't over yet. That is, it's sort of like a fake-out climax in a way, like in any other movie, pulling off the heist and getting the money at the end would be the end, but I kind of feel like the movie isn't entirely just about stealing the money. He has to do the whole thing with laying low and all that stuff and like there's a whole other part of the plan that we weren't privy to that no one really was. So in a way the heist is still kind of going on they do sort of form a kind of family even Joe Bang's brothers who are reformed right like they follow the Lord now so they need you know a moral excuse to rip somebody off all the power figures in the movie are corrupt. The warden of the prison, the jail, played by Dwight Yoakam, who I, I always, I always love, and the Seth MacFarlane character, in the, and the the bigwig from the Motor Speedway that we meet near the end when they when they're claiming that they haven't lost all this money. With apart from sort of the people like Hilary Swank or Channing Tatum's sort of immediate supervisor, who who are sort of doing their best within the system, all the people who are who have any any real power are all corrupt, and our people are the sort of loyal, honest, brave, true ones who have to sort of break the rules in order to make good, right? In order to get what's theirs, they have to stick it to the man in the guise of all these sort of powerful figures, which is such a, I think, a gets to the zeitgeist right now in a really meaningful way. Yeah, there's a lot of terminology in this movie that I feel is placed there intentionally, like the term pre-existing condition, right? And the healthcare talk, and 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 it being set a lot in West Virginia, right? Right, it's, right. There's just location-wise, like there's just a lot of sort of importance, and that is in the forefront of like a lot of national discussion, like a lot of this stuff. So it, it's in the background of this movie, but yeah, it is it is a point. Well, you know exactly what you're saying i googled to try to find the full quote of when they're talking they're like you know nascar's like america it's like you're hurting america i googled that and all of the google like related searches and everything and all of the results were all trump stuff everything in this movie like all the quotes like everything that they say is all related to his mentality and the way that he appealed to the masses and it was weird like this you know hurting america and like in the movie, it doesn't always, I mean, sometimes it does, I absolutely agree, like, it sometimes feels like that. It doesn't always feel like that, but then you Google it, and, like, you go a little bit deeper trying to, like, I'm trying to find just, like, longer quotes so I can put them places, and 
it's like this is what the election was two years ago. I've never been to NASCAR, but it looks like a military sort of parade. You know, like it doesn't to me seem like a sporting event. It more seems like a nationalist sort of like presentation. I mean, they got the choppers, they got the jets, they got like the freaking tanks and all the army people and the Navy and everybody. It's just not what I was expecting to see like at a, uh, you know, you don't see that at baseball necessarily or anything. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like they really amp up that imagery for that sport for that region of the country intentionally. And yeah, it's sort of played off here a little bit as a joke, but to me, it's more a little, I don't want to say scary, but it's unnerving. You know, the idea that this raceway is a city unto itself and that people live there year round to watch NASCAR and just how seriously everything is taken and what a business it is to everybody's livelihood and and how ingrained into the uh, community it is. It was all very more overwhelming than I originally thought. Yeah, Soderbergh is such a good anthropological filmmaker in this way, somewhat in the same way that we talked about The Nick the last few weeks, where he's looking at a sort of social milieu that's not his own, and he is... It doesn't feel to me like he's making fun of NASCAR or the people who go to NASCAR, or but he's just sort of you know, showing it from the ground level and letting you sort of see if you have not been to it, this is not your world, sort of see what it's like. And I think that there's something really powerful about setting this story there and the idea that these guys are not, you know, our our Robin Hoods are not ripping off the people, right? They're ripping off people who are feeding on the people, right? Like the small people, they're all whole. It's the the companies that are going to lose their, you lose part of their lunch on this. And I think that that's, he's, he's, so he's walking kind of a fine line there. And, and still at the same time, this fits perfectly into the way he's always dealt with the capitalist system in so much of his work. I like that idea that he is sort of like a archaeological filmmaker like yeah, yeah that's really interesting like he does just sort of find like a community or a social structure or a sect or something and just like turn the camera on it and like this isn't necessarily a comedy but it's all it's funny as hell mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. because of the circumstances and you know like the environment and all that kind of just because of the direction he turned the camera he has a knack for making that work really well because I think that that could come across very boring at times in a lot of ways but it never does he just manages to make it very entertaining. And I think that's the most important thing of all, is that we're analyzing this movie and its themes and its goals and the way that they accomplish things, but like at its core, it's just really fun. Like It's just a lot of fun to watch this movie. And I think that that's really what's remarkable about him as a filmmaker is that he's able to do these movies that are about such grand ideas and then also happening is like a heist or there's just strippers or whatever like it's just it's the way that he's able to blend these worlds and these like levels of engagement i don't know what many other people who are doing it the way that he is yeah no one should listen to our conversation and think this movie isn't fun to watch or it's some kind of like thesis on you know (laughs) the american system or whatever i would invert the way you said that and say i think the movie is actually about that stuff but on top of it is this just really really fun movie and and i think that like the best of his movies you can watch it on a number of levels i think you could watch this movie just as a sort of fun hillbilly heist movie and have a great time and because as you guys have been saying these performances are top 
notch. The only one I quibble with is Katie Holmes. I, I really like Katie Holmes, and I was I have in my notes here. I'm so glad to see she's back. But to me, it seems to me like she's trying too hard. Like she's trying really hard in this movie, and I think that it doesn't work quite as well for me. But I I don't I don't really hold it against her. It's just that everybody else seems so effortless in what they're able to do in this movie, and are, seem to be having such a good time. And I know her character is not really having fun. That's part of it. it's it, the point of the character. Like it's a hard role. But uh, yeah, you know she. She gets a B plus for me, and everybody else is working in in the A range for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, she doesn't really have a lot necessarily to work with because she's not part of the heist. She's just there to kind of nag Channing in a way. I like her as an actress. I like her in this. It just she seems like her role is so important, but her role within the story is so much, is like an afterthought. And I don't know how else you get Sadie to go from Channing to this other house, this other family. I don't know. I mean, I guess that's also... I mean, I think the movie maybe works in a way without Katie Holmes and Sadie at all. I mean, there's there's the emotional core there for Channing, that he yeah. loves his daughter. But, like, they're not necessarily essential to the story. They're not there no. for the heist. Like, you could do this movie without them. And I wouldn't it's take just... them out. I'm not arguing no, that right. she shouldn't be there, just that she's trying a little too hard. I was thinking that a little bit, but I actually quite like her little moment at the end when she just doesn't, you know, like in the beginning of the movie, she's very strict with the visitation and we're moving across state line and all this stuff. And Channing just is there to sort of take it on the chin. And, you know, that's good. We get a nice sort of insight into his character. Like he's not going to like argue with his ex-wife and cause a ruckus. You know what I'm saying? Like he's trying to make things work the best that they can. And then I like at the end of the movie how she has that moment where she's just kind of like, she see, you could tell she sees something different in him, no matter, not quite sure what it is, but she just doesn't have enough screen time to really get that to work that well. And I also feel like this is a nice role for her to sort of come back to acting in a lot of ways. Like, I just feel like she hasn't really been acting a lot in the past, like, decade, necessarily, because, like, in the 90s and after that for a while, like, she's she was really sort of going strong and then married Tom Cruise and sort of disappeared for a while I think and so for like a little comeback role I think she's a nice recognizable presence here there's definitely way stronger work going on I mean I know we mentioned Daniel Craig but it's like (laughs) watching Daniel Craig in this movie made me so effing happy like it was one of those other moments where it's like Soderbergh being the master of finding something in somebody that you never knew was really there before you know right. like uh for me we, we've seen it with lopez right some yep. would argue aaron brockovich like really brought something out of uh julia roberts and like this is definitely one of those instances where it's like he is a master with actors because like halfway through the movie i was like this isn't even daniel craig this is some yeah. guy joe bang they right. got off the street and like <laughs> that's what's up and you get the sense he is having a ball. As with the Oceans movies, it seems like he's like Daniel Craig is just having the best time in this movie, like you know, on set. And he's given a lot of leash. All the actors are like it seems it's it feels like the, the movie's kind of deceptive this way. You you've gotten to this a little bit, Joey, that it, it feels like a shorter movie than it is. You know, it's, it's two hours long, but it, it feels like one of his like ninety minute movies to me. And I think that it. Part of it has to do with how within the scenes, he, without the movie getting baggy, he allows the actors to kind of control their own pace a little bit or sort of find themselves. 
in the best cases like Daniel Craig or Adam Driver, like they find a whole new rhythms that we haven't seen them as actors play before. And I'd watch the Joe Bang movie like in a heartbeat, you know? And I think it, it just looks like he, you know, for a guy who has had such a tortured relationship with his Bond persona and that role, to see him get to unleash a little bit and, and have so much fun is really satisfying. I mean, obviously Soderbergh knows what he's doing, but the movie also knows that when we see, when he is walking into the room, into the visitation room, and we hear Channing talking to Adam Driver, and we're just following the back of a guy. And I mean, obviously he was on all the marketing, he was on all the advertising, he was on the trailers, the posters, whatever, but we don't see his face until like Soderbergh is ready for us to, because he's a guy that we know, but he's so different. And it's just so cool that it's like this like menacing sort of guy. You're like, oh no, that's the guy I know. But it's just, it's not the guy I know. Yeah, I mean, again, for me, it just played against stereotype and expectations because I just figured, like they did, like he was just going to use a couple sticks of dynamite to blow something up, you know? <laughs> and, like, he goes into this whole sort of, like, scientific explanation of, like, I'm going to use the gummy bears and the bleach pens and the, and the fake salt and, like, put it all together and make a bang. It's just really well explored. Like, even when he has, like, his thing with the eggs, right? And, like, that's, you know, I didn't realize it that it was setting up the fake salt thing so that he keeps that, you know, as part of his arsenal. Um, <laughs> but just that he has that sort of eye patch of, like, he's just a weirdo that likes these freaking eggs that come from a vending machine. Like, who eats the eggs in a vending machine? Like, that is just nasty in my eyes, you know? Like, But that this guy loves them uh, is such a great character trait. And that's what this movie is kind of full of. Like, everybody has these great little, like, traits. Like, the warden is so, like, stubborn and, like, you know, power-hungry. And it's, like, all, just, like, he's in control. He's, like, barely in control of this, like, small little prison. But he thinks he's, like, a monarch of some kind, you know? And everybody just has something like that. And it's really refreshing that nobody here is really one-dimensional. Oh, just about. It. At least our main characters. Speaking of the warden, I do want to bring up the hardest that I laughed in the theater, which I don't know how well this joke will last in five or ten years, but when they have the list of demands from the inmates and they want to get the Song of Ice and Fire books added to the prison library, and like, okay, we can get you this one, but these next two aren't out yet, and then the one guy is like, that's bullshit, like he was, it was due to his publisher two years ago, and I am just cracking up because like there is, in the world of... George R.R. R. Martin, if anybody who's listening does not know. The TV show, as they, they mentioned in here, has gotten way ahead of the books. I never read the books before the show came on, so I don't care. I don't have this affinity, this affection. But people who read the books, the first one came out, I think, in, like, 96. And, like, we should have had the sixth, if not the sixth and the seventh books by now. And they're not out. There's They're probably never coming out. And so for these guys who are in prison, presumably for years, and don't have access to the outside world, for them to be like, oh, no, like a reasonable demand, like we want these books that we were promised, for the warden to be like, I'm, I'm looking on Wikipedia right now, like they're not out, like a grueling tour schedule. And like, it's just such a weird, like I guess you were saying earlier, Tobin, like it's like of this time, like it's this time and place and like this feeling. And I don't know how well that joke will hold up in five or ten years if you watch this then but right now like it is just so weirdly specific and funny and it's just I, I loved it I have to dissent on that joke a little bit. That, to me, is one of the weaker moments in terms of the comedy in the movie, partly because it strains believability. And I understand how that sounds in a movie that's sort of as crazy as this is. But A, it felt kind of like an easy joke, and B, it felt a little bit like that means that none of these guys had have anybody visit them ever. And I find that hard to believe because we see people visiting them, right? So all anybody has to do is ask somebody on the outside, 
Yeah, but are they asking about the... Like, they're not asking about Game of Thrones. I mean, I guess they could. If they are this adamant about they put it in the demands, then yeah, they're going to ask their sister when she comes to visit, hey, how's the new Game of Thrones book or whatever? For me, when the, when this when it gets really broad, also because they, they're wanting to explain so well how the guys manage the heist. And if you're going to go to that detail to make us make me believe that's all happening, then that this felt to me like maybe a little bit of a of a tangent. I think you guys like this movie a little bit better than I do. As I look on our letterbox where you placed it, you guys both have it in the top ten, and I have it a little a little farther down than that. And I I think that it's for me it's it's moments like this that that sort of yeah they just feel a little a little easier, a little bit cheaper than um than than I prefer. I have like I think at number six. I don't think that this is necessarily one of his best movies. I just think it's a lot of fun and it has the people that I love in the lead roles. You know what I mean? Like it's sure, sure, it's sure. it's a movie that I enjoy more than I think is good. I think I still think it's good, but I like it more than I think it's good. And that's why I have it sixth. I mean I think I have like the top five are gonna be tough to crack, I think. This one sort of feels a little bit behind the informant on my list, but you know, I, I just really, really enjoy this movie. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I love this one, especially upon the second viewing. I think it's a little better if you've seen it before. I I actually feel like it got better the second time. It was a little easier to follow. The first time I was just sort of just overwhelmed, I think, by, oh, it's a new Soderbergh film. Like, uh, what's it going to, you know, like, uh, I got to pay like super attention to it and everything. But now this time I was just in love with this movie. I sort of, I guess, fall in the middle between you guys on the Game of Thrones joke. Like what I liked about is how they kind of danced around like what they were talking about at first. Uh, as far as demands but I think it just has to go with like how low grade this riot is and how sort of ridiculous you know the whole situation is and um, I also think it might even be a comment on media consumption in our culture these days the idea that uh, things are getting adapted and then sort of outpacing the original source content and then going on to kind of becoming the official canon in a lot of ways like I feel like you see that with the Marvel MCU movies like you know uh, they pull from every Everywhere, and now it's sort of like, oh, I mean, personally, I don't have time or money to read comics anymore. So like I go see the new superhero movie and consider it like reading an issue of a comic book. Uh, so uh, part of me kind of felt like that was a clever jab that Soderbergh put in there regarding the idea of how the way things are outpaced, the way that we are consuming media and the way that like some people are cut off from it and sort of left behind because they can't binge watch like we can. But uh, I, I understand if it's not funny or clear or anything. I mean, it is one of the more sort of forced moments of laughter. I will give it that, you know, like the, the best parts play for me, like someone like Riley Keough being like the car expert and, you know, driving fast and knowing all the back roads and all and like that being part of her character and, and then being like the um, gorgeous hairdresser, like that being her trait to me was was really funny and worked really well. I mean, yeah, every time that Riley, my love, my beloved Riley, puts down her brother-in-law, anytime, like, she makes fun of him, like, oh, I guess you can't drive stick or whatever, like, anytime that this, what appears to be, like, this sort of bimbo hairdresser, she's sort of like a modern-day Marissa Tomei from My Cousin Ah, Vinny, sort of, right? Like, she's like a, the big hair and, like, you know, the nails and, like, doesn't look like she should have any of the answers, but might be the smartest person this entire movie. (laughs) And not, not only that, but, like, when, when the break Breakout plan is happening. It's obviously a stunt driver, but like you see that character like pick up Adam Driver and Joe Bang from like that truck, and she like peels out into the highway in that, in that blue sports car. And I was like, yeah, like she's not only a great driver. Like you know, we we, we were talking 
they, we, we mentioned earlier, earlier Fast and Furious, um, like Mia being Dom's sister is obviously a great driver too. We just don't get to see her do it. But here, you know, we have Riley as a great driver. Uh, she's very good at what she does. She like, we see her when they explain the heist to us, we see her role in it, which we don't see in live action. We just sort of, like, the movie wants us to think, I think that she's just sitting in the car right, right. and she's just sort of like transportation, but she's got this instrumental role and I just love, I mean, she's so good and she's so smart and funny. And like, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously in the bag for her anyway, but like, you know, whenever she's being funny or rude or mean to the guy who deserves it or like being part of the team or whatever, or like my favorite moment, I think, is when Channing says to her, like, we got to code pink and like how yeah. excited she gets that like her plan worked. I was like, yes, I get it. Like, that's cool. Awesome. Yeah, she is magnetic, and she has dialed into this part and is, you know, completely a part of this, you know, with the, the best actors in this movie. My second viewing of that scene with the Code Pink scene, it looked to me like that might have been an, not an outtake, but an improvisation on her part. Like, it looks like when she's laughing at the end, and that, that maybe she's really laughing. And there are a number of places in this movie that I would love to know the story behind the, the, the moment. There's a moment very early on, I think it's right after Channing Tatum has been let go of his construction job, and he walks out the door and then tosses his hard hat like behind his back, and without looking, it lands right in the, the box of hard hats and slams shut. And it's such a perfect visual metaphor for what's going on at that moment, as well as showing us just exactly how sort of, you know, effortlessly cool this guy is, that I'm so curious if that, like, I you almost want wonder is this a cgi moment like did they need this to happen or is this something that he just did either because he could or because it happened by accident but moments like that in this movie elevate sort of scene to scene elevate it above i think what a lot of other kind of directors would do with this kind of material I wrote down that everybody in this movie is so good at throwing things. Like, he's he does that when we have, we talked about earlier, when they, like, Molotov Seth MacFarlane's car, uh, Adam Driver throws, like, two liquor bottles, it seems like. He throws the one yes, thing to break yes, the yes. window, and he throws the Molotov in. Channing, like, fastballs in, because, I mean, I guess he was, you know, quarterback, so maybe he's accurate like that, but he, like, he throws both cell phones that he takes into the car, and, like, everybody is, like, nailing this, and I don't know if it's CGI-aided, I don't know if they did, like, a million takes until they got it, I don't know if they're just really good at what they do it's just like these little cool moments like wow like cool okay i really like thinking about how adam driver had to learn how to do a one-armed martini trick you know (laughs) for this movie yeah i totally felt these little flourishes of reality i guess seeping through the edges of the film like that one moment that i really loved and this time actually like i was so involved like i actually started to tear up a little bit is when his daughter sings at the talent show and what's great is like you know it's obviously like a scripted moment but it plays as an improv moment when the when the audience starts singing along because it's their state and they know this is like their anthem and like that moment is just like awesome and i feel like he found that moment or maybe not maybe it was in the script but i feel like that moment is is right because you know he finds so many good ways to integrate improv previously into his films and just the right amount and not too much and this this is cool this feels like a nice like believable moment of like yeah they would just start like singing along to this song so like I, i really like that too that brings up another question that i have which is who wrote this movie yeah, I remember hearing a, a little something about people questioning that when it came out, right? That he may have written it under a pseudonym? Yeah, Rebecca Blunt. Rebecca Blunt is the name of, is the credited writer on the movie, but 
she's not quoted in any interviews. She, no <laughs> one's ever, ever. And, and they, they say that um, Daniel Craig, I read somewhere that Daniel Craig and Channing Tatum had conversations with her via email from the UK. And beyond that, there's no record of this person. So my guess is that he wrote this movie. And and it's just another one of his sort of, the pseudonym train goes on here for, for Soderbergh. And maybe not, maybe somebody else did. But I, I, I find it hard to believe that it's a, a mysterious woman with no credits from the UK who wrote this West Virginia heist movie. But it's different, though, because he normally, like, haven't we criticized his writing in the past? And like here, it's good. Well, I don't know. He wrote Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Like, the guy can write a movie. And maybe maybe, sure. and maybe he wasn't it. Maybe there is somebody else who, who agreed not to have their name be on a Soderbergh movie. I mean, I just maybe, – maybe that's just my ego getting in the way, that if I had written a Soderbergh movie, they, they could not keep me off Twitter, you know? <laughs> I love it in the sense that, you know, this is his first movie back out of retirement, and he's kind of pulling sly remarks like that. You know, like he's referencing Ocean's movies. Right. Like he's even calling them the Ocean 7-Eleven. Right. He's doing the thing with Daniel Craig, you know, introducing Joe Bank, like, you know, like introducing him as a new actor. So, I mean, that's a very schizopolis movie right, right. right there. So it, it seems like, you know, he's back. This is his first movie. He's going to have fun. He's going to be subversive in ways that, you know, are only maybe funny to him. And so therefore he's going to go straight this movie, too, or something. I don't know. I, I, I believe that, too. You know, it is extremely sharp. I feel this this movie this script like most of his movies like it covers so much ground (laughs) there's so much coverage there's so much going on uh it folds back over on itself but yeah i mean it just feels quintessential soderbergh to me i mean there is another connection between the uk and the smoky mountains and shannon tatum though oh yeah Tobin, I don't know if you saw the uh, second Kingsman movie, I have not. but there is basically the American version of Kingsman is in Tennessee, I believe, and it's Channing Tatum's distillery. And oh. so there is a, a British-American connection there. So maybe Rebecca Blunt <laughs> is someone from the set of Kingsman Golden Circle. Maybe it's Julianne Morris Poppy in character writing the script. Who knows? What's even crazier about that connection is that a character in that movie sings the same John Denver song. Oh, no. Okay, yes. So this is... I've been waiting to bring this up. Bring it up now. (laughs) One of my favorite film writers is Alison Wilmore for BuzzFeed. Yes. And she, last year, put out a list of the six 2017 movies that used John Denver songs, (laughs) and she ranked them. Oh, cool. And her number one was Okja, which uses Annie's song. Uh, But this was number two. Alien Covenant was number three, which is another Catherine Waterston movie. Free Fire is number four. Kingsman, another Channing Tatum movie, is number five. And Diary of a Wimpy Kid, The Long Haul, is number six. So six movies last year all used John Denver songs. And Take Me Home, Country Roads is in, like, most of them. (laughs) And it's great in Kingsman. It's great in this. I mean, they're both emotional moments, but it's this really crazy not resurgence but like why do they keep using this song it feels to me like it just hit that year (laughs) like i don't know like sometimes i guess that happens where the same song or something is referenced in multiple films it's just a hot song that year i don't know it's very strange i'll give it that like it's a very big coincidence that so many movies used the same artist that year but i love it i think it worked in most of those movies it definitely worked in this one in kingsman for sure I loved all those. I've, I've seen all those movies. I loved Oksha. I don't know if anything could have really saved Alien Covenant <laughs> unless you, like, rewrote it and called it Annihilation or something. <laughs> the other thing is um, 
you know, the score to this we have returning is... Um, oh, yep, 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 yep. David Holmes. David oh, Holmes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so that's another sort of like, I got a bit of an Oceans thing going off that too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. A couple other sort of little bits of trivia while we're talking about this. Michael Shannon and Matt Damon were both in this movie, but dropped out due to conflicts, apparently. Um, so it would have been cool to see those guys. Like in a lot of other Soderbergh movies, there are cameos in this. There are the cameos that I don't know because they're all NASCAR drivers. But the state trooper who pulls over the lady in the purple car is retired driver Carl Edwards. The cake delivery boy and the limo driver are both NASCAR drivers. The other state trooper is one too, the security guards. And then they have like the Fox or whatever. They have like Jeff Gordon in the booth doing the commentary. Like he's obviously a NASCAR driver. So it's this world of real people. You know, I guess that's also sort of the thing like, hey, you want to go see this like, you know, Hillbilly Heist movie and watch this thing about NASCAR. And then like as a NASCAR fan, you're like, oh, shit, there's all my favorite drivers. Like it's it's this cool things that flew right over my head because I've never watched a minute of NASCAR, even though as we're recording this, Charlize just opened up the Daytona 500 or something. Uh, So she was at one of these major events recently. But it's cool that he is still taking from that world. I guess he's moved on from comedians to NASCAR drivers. (laughs) Well, there's a few, there's a few sort of comedic actors. There's someone like from The Office I recognize, and yeah. someone from Parks and Rec I recognize. Jerry, so, yeah, yeah, Jerry yeah. Hare. Uh, but yeah, this movie is definitely NASCAR culture all over it. Like I could definitely see that appeal to it. Uh, I wonder how it did. I mean, how did this really do? Like I don't remember it making a, a big bang, uh, as it were. Yeah. Box office wise, did it make a Joe Bang? Right. Did it do well sort of in that? I mean, what is the NASCAR? That's mostly the South. Uh, Was this a big movie for the NASCAR fans? So the interesting thing about this movie, and I think we might have talked about this on past episodes, is that the way that they financed it was they dodged a studio because Soderbergh wanted more creative control or total creative control and more profits. So he sold the foreign distribution rights to make the movie and then to put the movie in theaters. He sold everything but the theater run. So he sold like HBO, Netflix, VOD, television, airplanes, all that stuff. And so he did all of that outside of a studio so he could make the movie he wanted and still pay for it and still get in the theaters. That also meant that he had marketing control, that all the trailers were exactly what he wanted, all the posters were exactly what he wanted, the marketing campaigns were exactly what he wanted. According to Box Office Mojo, the budget was $29 million, and it made $47 million. God, that is tiny. That's a tiny budget for this movie. Yes. And so it made 27 domestically and another 19 worldwide. So it made 47 in total. But, like, that's 100% profit. You know what I mean? Like, that's... Crazy. Yeah. That's just him. Like, so he, I mean, I'm sure that people got points in the back end because there's no way that you get all these people in your movie and still have a budget of under $29 million. But yeah, I mean, like, he beat the system to, like, we've, we've seen him experiment, like, with this, like, you know, with HDNet and Mark Cuban stuff and whatever. But this is, like, a new way of him trying to beat the system. It wasn't a huge movie, but it made money and it proved that you can finance a big budget movie yourself, really, you know, just by being smart about things and also you know having a cast full of five of like the biggest actors in the last like 20 20 years or whatever you know what i mean just like massive stars but and that's it's a he's going back in some ways to an older strategy in the 90s in particular a lot of independent movies were made by selling off foreign distribution rights in fact you'd have you know agents who who their whole job like selling agents their whole job was to sort of go to these big conferences with the here's the script here's the cast we have attached how much can i get from german tv to put together the budget for this movie so it's not but but it's unusual to do it this like to go all the way through like releasing it 
yourself this way. Like this is a he's 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 pushing it to its limit in this in this way. And as you say, to have all, all this control. And he, I remember there were some articles after the movie had come out that where he was feeling like he he was not quite being apologetic, but he was saying, okay, look, the marketing of this movie didn't work out quite the way that we wanted it to. We thought it was going to be bigger than it was. And so we're sort of looking at that and figuring out what we're going to do with the next one, which turns out to be insane. And it'll be interesting to see how they both how they market that movie in a different way than they did this one, but also how maybe maybe does it impact the kind of movies he's going to make too, right? Like he's he's talked about sort of learning as he goes with this model. I love how he as an artist is always trying to work the system and because it like reflects his work, you know, like his he makes art about people who are trying to work the system into their favor too. So it's really, you know, satisfying to know that like he is what he represents. I mean, it's not like he has to like recreate the system or anything, right, right. but it's cool that he is showing other avenues that work and uh, that are possible or or old ways that can be sort of reinvented. Yeah. And you need someone of Soderbergh's stature, a best director Oscar winner who's made some of the, you know, one of the biggest franchises, you know, in, in Hollywood to to sort of stretch the bounds of what's possible so the next people can come along people in the next tier can come along and say oh i'm going to try something like this too and i think it's you know i will forever be grateful for his for these these kind of distribution experiments on his part it's crazy i wonder if he saw like tangerine or something because when i saw that movie i was like oh i would i would watch a movie shot on an iphone that makes no difference to me whatsoever like it's clearly about the story and the creator you know if they can stick to that you know i i feel like it's not a gimmick quote unquote to say your movie's shot on an iphone per se it's still about the execution and the quality and the actual like storytelling and everything like that plus tangerine still looks beautiful like it's still a great looking movie right yeah right, right. This is very exciting. We'll get to it when we get to it and in, insane, but he ha- he did talk he has talked about Sean Baker and that movie in particular being sort of like a eye-opening experience for him. Yeah. I mean, that's like sort of the beauty and also the difficulty of creating art in 2018 or 2017 when this movie came out is that like anybody can make whatever they want to make and put it out to the world. Like the same thing we're doing with the podcast. Like the tools are there. It's all free to do. Like you have the equipment. The equipment's not expensive. You just put it out there. The difficulty is in finding an audience and like whether you pay for that or whether you have people like so hopefully stumble across your stuff. That's the challenge. And so Soderbergh, I guess, could have gone an alternative route and just put it out on VOD or just like, you know, done like what Louis C.K. did, does whatever. I don't know if he's still working or not. Who knows? Where he just is like, I made a thing. Here it is on my website. I make 100% of the money. Like they could have put this out on Steven Soderbergh's site. I mean, it wouldn't have been as profitable, I don't think, but it would have cost less. Like there's a lot of ways that he could do that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if one day he just is like, hey, here's a movie on my site. Just go, go pay for it or whatever. Because it seems like he's all always trying to find new ways to save money or make new money or just be like, hey, I can do this thing or we can do this thing. Anybody can do this thing. Yeah, and it's great that he has the sort of product to back it up as well. It's not like you see an ad for his movie on the Super Bowl and then watch it on Netflix and it's like, uh uh-oh, like (laughs) that was just a gimmick to get me to watch Netflix. Like he could actually back it up. I have no idea what movie you're talking about. So there's two things I love that the characters do, like every character does, that like pretty much... Every character spends this movie realizing almost too late that they should run. When they make the bomb, they're like, step four, run. They're like, what? And then, like, the one guy runs. The other guy's like, oh, no. And then when Joe Bang and uh, Adam Driver, I keep calling him Joe Bang instead of Daniel Craig. I just don't know anybody else's name. But, like, Joe Bang and then Adam Driver fall into the garbage chute. And Joe Bang's like, what's the, what's the last thing? I was like, oh, roll, roll, roll. And he rolls out of the way just in the last minute. Um, and that's one of the handful of 
IMDb trivia things about Star Wars references about they were both in Force Awakens together, uh, you know, Daniel Craig as a stormtrooper. Oh, garbage shoots. But the garbage shoot and everything. But it's like this whole, like, every character is just like, they know what they need to do, but sometimes it's like, just like, it's almost too late. And the other thing that I like that like a, a handful of characters confuse, and even Rami Kido does, and she's his sister, is that like they confuse hand with arm. Like he's missing an arm. He's like, no, actually, I'm just missing a hand. And like even uh-huh. Rami Kido, who like is related to him, does the same thing. I, I just like how there's these like motifs, these recurring things that every character like. It's not like they're dumb. It's just like that's the way that you would refer to things. You're like there's these complicated plans. Like what do I have to do? Like oh right, get out of the way so that I don't get that I don't get right. blown up or right. landed on or something. Yeah, there's the other moment when Joe Bank puts the gummy bear bomb into the pneumatic tube and it shoots back. <laughs> or, or he puts it in and he goes, now what? And he goes, run. And they don't run for a second or something. I don't know. But yeah, that yeah. Was, yeah, there was another moment. No, exactly. Yep, exactly. I also love in that moment, there's a couple things in that gummy bear scene where like, you know, Adam Driver catches the gummy bear pneumatic tube, just like he like catches it against his chest and like is panicking. But Joe, he's like, oh, I just, you know, I didn't. I tied it too many times or whatever, and he fixes it. I also love the mid-heist chemistry lesson that he writes in Chalk on the Wall. Like, yes, we yes. have time, apparently, to say, like, this is the chemical components. This is why I have to buy gummy bears. This is what the gummy bears are going to do. You know, you need this chemical, this chemical, this chemical, whatever. I just love that, like, obviously under a time crunch, but, you know, it's just sort of this, like, joke that, like, hey, you think that this guy, again, going back to what you are saying earlier, Mike, like, you look at Joe Bang, you, like, in your brain think he's one thing, but he's, like, writing these complicated chemical equations on the wall. You're like, oh, this guy knows his shit. There's a quick scene in the in the salon earlier where someone says to Channing Tatum, like, you don't like technology? What are you, one of them Unabomber types? And he's like, yeah, I'm one of them Unabomber types, you know? And it's like, that's what Joe Bang kind of is, though. Like, he makes this Unabomb, <laughs> like, on the spot and everything. But it's just like, he's a genius. And, you know, for what it was, like, I guess Ted Staczynski was a genius, too, whatever. But, like, yeah, I just love the whole subversion of expectation that this movie brings like that. And I think you actually bring up another good point that it's got to be some kind of commentary here that not only is there like a financial divide, but there's a technological divide that Channing Tatum is like, you know, fearful of technology. We know from the very beginning that he he has a cell phone, just to take pictures of his daughter, doesn't actually use, like doesn't pay for it to keep it open. He says, I looked it up on the Google. Uh, then Joe Bang's brothers are like, what do they say? I know all the Twitters. Yeah. I know everything. I know everything there is to know about computers. All the twitters, I know them. Like all, like it's just like these guys who are really good at what they do, but they also don't really get technology. That also comes back to the end that like he doesn't understand technology, but he knows enough about the world. And it's like it's literally straight out of the wire where Adam Driver asked Channing, he's like, "How did you know that this was the time?" Yeah, yeah that you could go get the money. He's like, well, I don't pay my phone and the phone was still on. And you know that after, like, if you're one day late in paying, they turn the phone off. And she's like, as soon as they stopped, like, as soon as the government stopped paying for my phone, which is something that happens in the wire, he knew that the investigation was off. And so that's when he knew he could go dig. But I just like that he doesn't know how the phones work, but he knows what the phone's working means, if that makes sense, which is more important. That is such a satisfying moment. Yeah, I, I do. I do like that moment a lot. Do you do you guys like the Hillary Swank section of this movie? How does that work for you? The first time I was kind of blindsided, I was like, oh, like now she's showing up and it's the end. But this time I loved it because she is so fucking furious and because she's right. Like she knows she's right and she's she hates airtight alibis, you know? Like this time around, I loved her. I almost felt like they were setting up a sequel at the end of this movie that's never going to happen, but it had that vibe that 
this story goes on, that they're not quite, maybe they're not quite in the clear yet, and that, who knows, uh, maybe we'll see them again one day. But, but yeah, I, I really did, I liked her in this. Well, I mean, it's the Logan family curse, right? Like, whenever things look like they're going well, that means that things are about to get real bad in a hurry. And so it's she's there at the end. Like, it looks like everybody's in a relationship. Like, I guess Riley Keough and Joe Banger may be in a relationship. Who knows? we got Channing and Katherine Watterson bonding over cartoon band-aids and stuff and then we see adam driver pouring a drink for a mystery lady and we see oh it's hillary swank and she's like i hope to be here for a long while it's like "Uh uh-oh yeah as with a lot of this movie i sort of i wasn't lukewarm on this movie the first time i saw it but it felt kind of it felt fine i i i didn't i didn't love this movie with a capital l and i liked it so much better this time one of the another sticking part for me was her in the first not not her but that section in the when i was first seeing it and i think in retrospect it's because sort of joy as you were saying i didn't have a clock so i didn't know how far we were from the end when the heist is finished it feels like we should be sort of close to the end of the movie. And so as it kept going, I, was, I wasn't really prepared for it, maybe. And this time, being prepared for it, I sort of, I was able to watch her a little bit more closely. And I think she's doing great work in this. She's an interesting actor. It's hard, I think, to find roles that fit her really well. You know, she's had some fantastic ones, great roles that fit her really well. But she's an odd kind of, odd kind of actor, I think. And I mean that in a good way. Like, she's interesting. And her sort of buttoned up, kind of strangely dressed, almost kind of savant-like, uh, you know, FBI agent in this is is great. Like, I would watch her movie. I'd watch that character's movie. And I think that if there was a sequel and they and they followed the sort of Ocean's line, maybe she'd be on the team, right? I So I anyway, I, I like that that section much better the second time around. Well, because like when you're if you're watching this movie having not seen it before and she shows up, you're almost like, oh, that's a weird kind of cool cameo for like this like FBI agent to come in and like try to do cleanup and then nothing happens. You're like, oh wait, no, I still have half an hour of the movie. Like it's this weird. Yeah, I didn't think it was out of character for Soderbergh to cast. I mean, but she, she but she's never been in one of his movies before. Right. Like I feel like if it was like a Matt Damon or a Julia Roberts who was like you know drop by set for a day, that would sort of make sense. But the fact that like it's this very prominent actress who's never been in one of his movies, I still thought it was like a cameo. Then you're like, oh no, there's still a lot of movie left, and like it it sort of becomes her movie. Like it's it's it's, it's it is odd, and I think that's a good way to sort of describe her. That like she's got this she's got this like imposing presence that they use really wonderfully here and it's just it's uh she's scary yeah she's scary yeah <laughs> i think one reason i like her is because you know because we're getting like a fourth act you know as it were in a way and uh and it, it is sort of like her movie now like the movie almost restarts or has like this coda and i think it helps to have an actor of her caliber lead this part of the film to the end you know um if we're gonna be here i'm glad we're here with her and someone of her acting ability and just like you said Tillman, like her presence in this is is great and it almost is like a little peek in maybe this is the sequel like this little part yeah. with yeah. like her chasing them down one thing that started to cross my mind is i don't know where i read or heard this but i think it related to soderbergh sort of talking about trying to break like the american third act structure in films a lot like you know we watch a lot of foreign movies too and you know they don't adhere right. you know as closely to the way american films are structured and i feel a lot of that in this movie with what we've been trying to sort of place with this sort of way the movie keeps going on like we expect it to end but it's not over there's like another 30 40 minutes or whatever i wonder if he is tapping into something like that if he is saying you know what like the u.s structure is boring or it's just i've done it so long like let me break that and bring in some of this other 
influence from around the world. You know, uh, the way films are made in France, in Italy, Japan, whatever, like uh, they're very different than the structure of American films. And I feel like he's tapping into that. Yeah, totally. And I, I think maybe my issue the first time with the whole movie, but this this part in general, and I'm you, you've opened my eyes to this, is I don't think I knew how to watch this movie. And I think that having seen it all the way through, I understand it has a different rhythm as it goes and maybe a different sort of overall structure. And that the second time helped. I, once I had my roadmap, I enjoyed it the first time, but I just didn't love it. And I liked it a lot better this time. But you still don't like it as much as us. Well, you know, it's that, yeah, for me, it's in that second tier. There's as, the same way you guys are saying, like there's that first four or five movies, and then there's the second grouping of them. It's firmly in that group, and I could see it sort of moving up or down, depending on how I'm feeling. But like in there with, for me, the, the ones above it are things like The Informant and Sex, Lies, and Videotape and Ocean's 12 and Magic Mike and Haywire and Contagion and Schizopolis. I put this in that whole list, that whole grouping of films, and I could see it sort of moving around in that that sort of, you know, the A minus section. Movies I still, in many cases, love and would put on in, in a heartbeat, but not ones that I'm like, that I think are kind of perfect, you know? But none of those movies have Channing Tatum spray tanning a <laughs> yes. nine year old girl or whatever with an industrial sprayer, so. One thing I loved is how the way the flag is sort of represented in the American flag. Like, when you see NASCAR, there's, like, this huge flag, like, the size of the field. But then some guy's using the flag as a parachute. And then Channing Tatum's, like, using the flag as, un like, his underwear yeah, yeah. is American flag. So yeah. it's just, like, you know, so many people stand up for the flag and, you know, don't disrespect it and stuff. But it's, like, guys, we make clothing and, like, wear it <laughs> and, like, you know, our balls are rubbed against it, like, all day. So it was just very funny to see, like, those little flourishes in there well that was funny to me i think that's all the notes that i have about this movie i'm looking forward to seeing it again for magic mics in a couple of years whenever we eventually get to this movie <laughs> in chronological order for channing not only do i love daniel craig in this movie but i in general just love adam driver like he is one of my new favorite yeah, actors yeah. of like the new age i guess or whatever and you know if i could just watch the scenes of him in that show girls and not the rest of the show maybe i would do a podcast about him but that's not fair. I mean, I get what you're saying, but Girls is actually really good. Yeah, it's a great cast, and and he's so unpredictable and and magnetic as an actor. Like, I there's so many actors in this that I can't take my eyes off when they're on screen. I mean, part of it is that they're just the way they are as actors, like like him and like Riley Keough, and and to some degree Daniel Craig, where it almost doesn't matter what the movie is. Like, they're just they're like movie stars as well as great actors. But this allows them to be both at the same time, and that's really satisfying. Anybody else have any other thoughts about? Logan Lucky? Fingers crossed for part two. Logan Luckier, yeah. Ooh. For all things Cinemakers, all previous 30 episodes that we've done, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. We are wrapping up rapidly. Next week might be our final episode in this little run. We are for sure going to do Mosaic, the HBO series that Soderbergh put out earlier this year, next week. Uh, whether or not Unseen is available VOD for us to watch the following week is left up in the air. We will eventually cover it at some point on this podcast. It might not be in two weeks, but next week might be the finale. It's like a cliffhanger of an ending. Yeah, like, will yeah. next week be the finale? Who can say? But anyway, cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod on Twitter. Go rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. Even though Soderbergh is coming to an end, this podcast will not come to an end. We're going to take a little bit of a break, I think, but Mike and I are going to come back with a different guest host and tackle different directors through time. So and Tobin will be back eventually for other directors too. That's right. But this one is sort of a catch-all like 
we didn't put Soderbergh's name in the title of the podcast because we knew that it was going to change from director to director. And so stay subscribed, rate and review if you like the show. I think we've sort of teased some directors that are going to come next. Mike and I, in full full transparency to you, don't exactly know who's going to be the next person <laughs> that we're going to cover. Oddly, I do know. No, I'm just kidding. Do you? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that would have been amazing, though. That would be weird, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we don't know who or when, but it will be someone and it will be this year. So that's all That's all I know at some point. You're going to know what we want you to know. <laughs> yeah. Cageclub.me, Facebook.com, slash Cageclub, at Pod on Twitter. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cauliflower. Cauliflower.